You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Hi, welcome to Spies and Spy Masters Happy Hour. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., Tonight, we're shining the spotlight on some figures from the limelight, Hollywood spies. And we have a special guest, um, the fabulous Jonna Mendez. Hi, Jonna. Hi, Amanda. It's good to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person. She's going to be, she's a former CIA chief of disguise and sort of international glamour girl. So she is going to be sharing some of her glitziest stories with us after we do a few little thumbnails on some Hollywood spies we love. Here is Greta Garbo, one of the most famous actresses of the 1920s and 30s, a real superstar of the time. And uh, she is one of the rare people who made the transition from the talk, from the silence to the talkies. And so her first talking picture, they said, Garbo talks, and it was a big deal. And then this Nanotchka film from 1939, she's always been very reserved, you know, uh, very, you know, a tragedian. All of a sudden, she's in a romantic comedy, and so the pitch is Garbo laughs. Um, and then Garbo got quiet. She actually um, quit films at the really old age of 35 um, in 1941. And this was kind of incredible, you know, and she had this incredible mystique around her. She did a couple of spy films. Um, She performed as Mata Hari, the World War I spy, uh, near and dear uh, to my heart. And then Nanachka often gets racked up as a spy film, but she's really, she's a Soviet dignitary. She's trying to close out a job that some bumbling comrades of hers have failed at in Paris. What Nanachka really is, is fabulous piece of propaganda because it makes the Soviet Union look so incredibly dismal and you're just seduced by Paris and how wonderful it is. So um, she is out of the pictures by 1941, but, 
supposedly she was involved in the war effort. She was Swedish. She uh, um, supposedly carried messages um, between the English and the Swedish king. Um, she was trying to get close to Axel Vena Gren, who was this real, really rich Swedish businessman. He founded Electrolux, um, the vacuum cleaner, refrigeration company, and he was friends with the Nazi Gehring. And he really didn't want Britain and Germany to go to war, but and was suspected of being a Nazi sympathizer. He sat out the war in the Bahamas, cozying up with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, often, you know, considered to be Nazi sympathizers. So, you know, they had Greta hot on his tail. Um, he did not turn out to be a Nazi sympathizer, but this was one of the things she was working on. But the most interesting thing of all, I think, is associated with one of her most famous lines in the Grand Hotel movie of the early 1930s, she said, I want to be alone. And if you're as old as I am, you have heard this line. It's always associated with her. But I'm going to add, I'm going to play with it and add a little second line to it. She was rumored to want to actually take Hitler out. She felt like if she could get close to him, she could do the ultimate wet job. What a piece of lethal action. That's in a biography of her. We don't know, and clearly she didn't do it, but hats off to Greta for wanting to do that. Um, I jump over to someone a little more modern, uh, Christopher Lee. And I think when people think of Christopher Lee, like if you're about my age in your 30s, you think Star Wars, you think Lord of the Rings, like that's what, or like any Tim Burton film, like that voice. Um, but he has been acting since he was 25 years old. He has played the trifecta of horror movie people, Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the mummy. So he really has become like the full trifecta. Um, but he's also rumored, I'm gonna use that word strongly, rumored to be a spy. Because in a lot of interviews, he talked about the work he did. Um, I have an image of him young. And he said that he was attached to the, he was part of the Royal Air Force, we do know that. But he said he was attached to the SAS, which is, um, and the SOE, which is the Special Ops Executive in England. And that he was part of several of their missions, that he was an intelligence officer. Um, he did have a leg up, I think, over a lot of people because he is Ian Fleming's step cousin. His mom married uh, Ian Fleming's uncle. So they apparently did work together, worked side by side for a little bit. I don't know if that's 100% true. That's one of the things. He did speak six languages, so he would have been a great candidate uh, to send him around on missions to obtain intelligence. Um, but every time he was asked about it in interviews up until he passed away, he would be like, I, you know, I am attached to this time to time. People want to make more about it than it is, um, but I'm just going to leave it at that. And then my favorite thing is one reporter kept hounding him about it, and he finally asked them, can you keep a secret? And they're like, yeah, I can. He goes, so can I. Um, but then later, he said after the war, he was part of a Nazi uh, who basically was sent in hunting Nazi criminals after World War II. There are historians though, however, recently in the last couple of years who've been going through records and they can't actually find any records of him doing this. So not 100% sure if this is true or not, um, but if it is and he's just that good, that makes his performance in James Bond 10 times better because uh, he truly is a secret spy. 
So Shauna, over to you. Yeah. All right. So Marlena Dietrich, she was one of Hollywood's most popular leading ladies during the 1930s and 40s, really known for her glamorous look and her uh, gender bending fashion. And you can tell just in this uh, image right there, I mean, she is absolutely gorgeous um, and ahead of her time in how she dresses. Uh, she was born in 1901 in Berlin, Germany, but made her way to Hollywood after her breakout role in the 1929 film, The Blue Angel. And when World War II broke out in Europe, Dietrich became a US citizen, uh, renouncing her citizenship uh, to Nazi Germany. And she was openly opposed uh, to the Nazis. And when the US entered the war, she became one of the first celebrities to really get involved. She toured the country selling war bonds. She volunteered with the USO. Uh, she was entertaining the troops on the front lines uh, across Europe and North Africa. Uh, so she was really more than just this incredible entertainer and celebrity. Uh, but that her role in the war did not end right there she also helped the OSS, which was um, kind of the U.S.'s precursor to the CIA, um, and she helped with their uh, morale operations branch as part of the MUSAC project. And what happened was the Allies had created these radio programs meant to demoralize and misinform the German soldiers. Uh, and the question is, so how do you get those German soldiers to listen to your radio programs? Well, that's where the Muzak Project came in, uh, by offering entertaining music from some of the biggest stars. And Dietrich was one of those biggest stars. So she started recording a number of songs in German for this station. And you can see the image on the left, that is um, an OSS record that we have uh, on display in the museum. And so while these songs were meant to lure these listeners in, many of them could also be used to lower morale. Now, the most popular song that Dietrich recorded was Lily Marlene. Uh, this song was originally recorded by this famous German singer, Lal Anderson. Um, and it was a favorite among soldiers, allies, and Germans during the war. Um, and the song is this bittersweet ballad about a lonely soldier pining for his love. Uh, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels was so worried this song would really hurt morale, he actually wanted it banned from the radio. And so Dietrich recorded this incredibly moving and a melancholy version that became really popular on this uh, radio station the Allies created that the German soldiers listened to. And you can see on the right, we have uh, her sheet music uh, on display in the museum as well. Now, despite all this work that Dietrich is doing for the US, the FBI actually feared she might be a Nazi spy. And so there's actually this lengthy FBI file on her but there's no real evidence of her doing any of this spying. Uh, they tended to focus more on her personal life and the many affairs she had. And officials noted that, quote, she was promiscuous, albeit in a rather cool and glamorous manner. So even the FBI found her glamorous. Uh, so I mean, imagine that in your file. Uh, promiscuous in a cool and glamorous manner. Yeah, I, wow. cool. 
Yep, absolutely. Uh, and for her contributions during the war, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And Bill Donovan, uh, the OSS chief, thanked Dietrich, saying, quote, I am personally deeply grateful for your generosity in making these recordings for us. Wow. What a woman. Yeah. Cool. Well, what a man. Let us oh. gaze for a moment at the glory that is Sterling Hayden, the most beautiful man in movies. Um, Sterling Hayden, I've, I've picked these nautical images um, because he was an expert seaman and he quit high school to be a professional, professional sailor but he also used it to catch the eye of Hollywood. He was kind of doing these major, you know, one man, you know, sales or merchandise carries. And people were like, wait a second, he's like six, five, 220 pounds. Like, I think he's got a face for movies. And so he was recruited and they pitched him out there as like the Viking, the most glorious man in the movies. And um, his first film was in 1941, Virginia, and it was not received that well. He was kind of, maybe he was a wooden beautiful man. So he, uh, you know, the war has broken out. He decides that uh, a better thing to do for hit with his time is to join the war cause. And um, he works for the OSS. Where's my camouflage slide? He is, um, he enlists in the Marines. He actually enlists as John Hamilton because he doesn't want a lot of attention from being Sterling Hayden movie star. I bet he's still stuck out of it, but he receives training from the OSS that um, we talked about that group before, um, training in sabotage and covert maneuvers. And then he uses that same nautical ability, his maritime FC abilities, and he is working off the Dalmatian coast in the Adriatic Sea, and he is supporting communist rebels. These are guerrillas under Tito's powers in what was Yugoslavia, and they are fighting um, the Axis there. So he is helping with, you know, transporting people, you know, maybe doing some gun running, some resupplying, working out there under the OSS whilst being a Marine. And he actually, in 1943, receives a silver medal from the OSS with the commendation for giving complete intelligence on the Dalmatian coast. So he really brings it. And then after the war, he returns to Hollywood and you and he's totally a different um, actor. You might remember him from he was in lots of cool movies, Asphalt Jungle, and he is in Dr. Strangelove, which is just kind of such an amazing Cold War movie. And he plays this insane Brigadier General Jack Ripper. So, you know, his career went on to be like quite incredible, very strong, and to have this Cold War connection. And what's interesting is, although Tito, um, you know, goes on to have this, this terrible reputation, you know, um, a violent person, a dictator perhaps, or in, indeed, but um, he never gives up his, his real admiration for Tito that began um, watching him work, um, you know, against the Nazis. All right. So 
we had the most beautiful man in the movies. Now we've got the world's most beautiful woman, uh, Hedy Lamar, and uh, Hollywood promoted her as the world's most beautiful woman. Uh, she appeared in dozens of films between the late 1930s through the 1950s, often typecast as this exotic and uh, glamorous seductress. Um, of course, here at the Spy Museum, we're a little partial to, partial to the Bob Hope film, uh, My Favorite Spy, that she is in. Uh, and you can see, again, totally gorgeous. Uh, she may have actually been the inspiration for Disney's Snow White. Um, as well with her look, and you can see that there. Um, but Lamar was actually born in Vienna, Austria in 1914. And as a child, she enjoyed uh, tinkering and would take apart and reassemble her music box to understand how it operated. And um, she also then started acting in Europe and eventually made her way to Hollywood, debuting in the 1938 film Algiers. But just because she was in Hollywood didn't mean she was giving up any tinkering. Uh, she actually still would create inventions. Some of those included uh, an improved traffic light and a glow-in-the-dark dog collar. But her greatest invention would come during World War II, when in 1940, Lamar met composer and former U.S. munitions inspector George Antile. And together, they came up with an idea for guiding radio-controlled torpedoes. They patented a secret communication system, which sent messages between a radio transmitter and receiver over multiple frequencies using a random pattern. This helped radio-controlled torpedoes reach their targets by preventing the interception of those radio waves. This is called frequency hopping, and this technology helped form the basis for today's Wi-Fi, GPS, and Bluetooth communication systems. Uh, on the left, you can see an image of the patent uh, that they got for this invention. And they actually signed that over to the US Navy in 1942, hoping that that would be helpful during the war. But the Navy didn't implement it during uh, the war, unfortunately. They eventually did many years later. Um, instead, Lamar was asked to go raise money for the war effort. We don't need your brilliant ideas. Go, go use that beautiful face to raise some war bonds, which she did. She brought in millions of dollars in war bonds. Um, and finally, though, in 2014, Lamar received the recognition she deserved when she and Antile were inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame for their frequency hopping communication system. And I put a, a nice little quote there um, from Hetty as well. Improving things comes naturally to me. She's incredibly, incredibly talented. And then I'm gonna wrap up. Uh, we've done the starlets, but let's get the guy behind the camera. And this is uh, John Ford. So John Ford um, always fancied himself a man of the water. He, his actually brother was the first one to go over to Hollywood, adopts the name Ford. He goes over, starts acting, realizes he likes it behind the camera a little bit more instead, has this yacht he's out on. Eventually he joins the Navy, uh, Navy Reserves and World War II hits. And he is becomes the field, basically the head of the Naval Field Photography Unit. Um, that catches the eye of the OSS, William Donovan. And he's like, hey, um, notice you've collected all these film, major filmmakers or like, well, not major, excuse me, um, like well-established filmmakers, like kids in the unit who knew what they were doing, they knew how to make film, 
why don't you come work for me at the OSS? So some of his projects include in the bottom uh, uh, left-hand side, you'll see uh, that picture of him leaning back. That's actually one of the OSS training films he made for them called Undercover, and he was the attorney in it. It's about two agents, and one does a good job and one does a bad job. So you know, be the good agent, um, but he's the attorney the whole time. Um, but his big thing is they send him out so he can make documentary films of the war. And he does a post uh, Pearl Harbor film called December 7th, that's a documentary. But his most famous one is called The Battle of Midway. Um, so The Battle of Midway, he was like on the front lines. He's actually injured while uh, he's filming at one point. He receives the Purple Heart after. But The Battle of Midway, it is the first time Americans truly see what war means uh, abroad. Couple things are important here. It's in color, it's 18 minutes long. Uh, the big thing that it's in color, color is reserved for films like Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, these blockbusters. So for them, for Americans to see this and see injured soldiers, to see explosions, like they are right in the midst. So you see everything in this film. Um, you can watch it on YouTube actually, if anyone's interested, if you just type it in, it's been like recolored. Um, but John Ford's biggest thing, he goes, I know people like to slash apart my films. You know, OSS is going to edit things. The presidents want to edit things. So he does something really sneaky. And he includes a shot of this man saluting. So this man is actually FDR's son, James Roosevelt. So when this is screened for the president, uh, the president's like, oh, great film, blah, blah, blah. And then this comes up towards the end. And it said the president goes silent and goes, I want every mother in America to see this film, which may have actually happened it played world like not world War, excuse me like nationwide um and because of it he actually won an oscar uh he wins an oscar he's chilling there's that oscar uh but like where is that oscar today um i don't know maybe sitting in the spy museum gallery the world war ii gallery just conveniently right here for you um also, one quick side note about John Ford, because I, when I was doing my research, I told Shauna this today. My favorite thing, that yacht I mentioned, uh, after the war started, he donated his yacht to the Navy so they could patrol the coast of California, which is probably got to be the best assignment if you're in the Navy. Like, hey, you're going to be on John Ford's yacht today. Have a nice day. Um, but speaking of the Oscars, that brings us to the best part of the program, Jana. No stranger to the red carpet, John and Mendez. Hello. We're going to see, uh, Jonna went through quite an amazing experience in the making of the Oscar-winning film Argo. And we have a little clip, don't we? And I'm going to play a quick clip of uh, Tony talking about that movie. My name is Tony Mendez. So I was proud to have him on the big screen looking at somebody and saying, my name is Tony Mendez. That was quite a moment. You play along with me today. I promise you, I will get you out tomorrow. Wow. Hi, Jonna. You know, what? that picture of Ben Affleck when he's saying, my name is Tony Mendez. That was such a close up. It filled the entire screen in the theater. And we were the only two people in the audience. I think Tony just went, wow, you know, it's a moment. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. about the journey for this film. This is based on Tony's real experiences, getting people out of Iran, Americans, during the hostage crisis. How did it come to be a film? If you can tell us a little bit about working with Hollywood on a real spy movie. I wanna tie just to one thing. I hadn't seen a lot of that John Ford material, but when I started my career as a photographer at CIA, I was occupying the dark rooms that he had set up with his guys, the original dark rooms in the original OSS offices. That's where I worked and I never had a clue because we didn't know anything about our history. We were doing it. We weren't looking over our shoulders. Um, the movie Argo, what started out with an operation that Tony um, undertook in 1979 to go into Tehran and rescue some diplomats who were stuck in that capital city and the Canadian um, ambassador and the DCM in, in their care. Um, Jimmy Carter was in a pickle because he couldn't figure out, he didn't have any moves. There wasn't any government in Tehran. There wasn't anyone to negotiate with. These, these revolutionaries, they didn't want to sit down at the table. They wanted to burn down the damn table. They didn't want to negotiate. There was no leverage. There was no way to get these people out. And all of the plans that were proposed hit this wall. And then Tony, um, who had always had deep connections to Hollywood, and that's left out of a lot of the stories that are told about the movie. But Tony was very, very much connected to Hollywood. And it was almost a natural thought. He was up in Canada trying to figure out how to get our people out of their embassy. We all wanted to do the same thing. And he was uh, coming home and he had an idea. He got home, called LA, called up uh, John Chambers, actually, the, the Oscar winning makeup guy, and said, without telling him anything, just said, how many people are in a location scouting party? And Chambers said, six, eight. Tony said, what, what would be their job titles? You know, he's writing them down. And that was the beginning of the story of Argo. That was the beginning of the operation. And I would always point out that it was the only operation that succeeded in that whole revolutionary Iran imbroglio. It was the only thing that worked. Um, so Tony would always say that the difficulty in that plan was not in coming up with the plan. That was kind of in his wheelhouse to be creative and to think outside of the box. And, you know, sometimes people would look like, well, I don't know if that's gonna work. A lot of the times it worked. But he said that the difficult part of the Argo operation was selling it to the bureaucracy at Langley. Not, the, not moving people around in Tehran through the airport and past all those guns and not that, 
by getting getting the bureaucracy to sign off to this really outrageous sounding idea, which is what he did. That's the part that he was as proud of that as he was of, of getting them out of there. And then, and then, and, and then, of course, you know, the story <clears throat> broke wide open. George Tennant um, declassified it. Actually, we were at the, um, and there was a movie made, right? I think we so. At, we were at the Golden Globes, and somebody tapped. We were listening to see who's going to win what. And somebody taps Tony on the shoulder. They said, "You have to come with us." And there was like a skybox at the Hilton where they have the Golden Globes. And there's a door and there's secret service guys who are, they didn't frisk us, but they, and while we stood there, who's the, who's the actor who played Lincoln that year? Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, yeah. Lewis walks out of the room and Tony looks at me like, this will be fun. We go in and there's Bill Clinton and Bradley Cooper. <clears throat> Bill Clinton wanted to meet Tony. So he gave him a big handshake and a big hug. And he said, Tony, so nice to meet you. And he told Tony how he had declassified the story. But he had not. What had Bradley that. Cooper was doing in there? Hanging. <laughs> they seem like total bros. They seem like they would be total bros. Tony gave the Secret Service uh, his iPhone. They took a picture. We took the picture and we sent it to the kids at home, our, our kids a group of kids, big group of friends. And they came back and said, oh my God, you met Bradley Cooper. And we sent the same photo to the Warner Brother people up in New York, who we worked very closely with. And they came back and said, we cut Bradley Cooper off of the picture and it's hanging on our door. <laughs> a few different ways you can look at a picture. Exactly. Well, do you have any, uh, before we, we have other questions, but um, do you want to comment on being at the Oscars? You know, it's hard to be at the Oscars. I mean, we, we went to all the, we went to Toronto. We went to, there's so many festivals. There's so many award shows and we went to all of them. But there was a question up to the very end, whether we would make it to the Oscars because to score those tickets is a very political, it's really, it's a big deal. We got in. That's where I found out that all those women and all those gowns, they don't buy them, they rent them. That's the first time I ever heard of that. Um, no, it was just amazing. You know, George Clooney had actually bought the rights and he was going to write it. He was going to direct it. He was going to star in it. It was the fourth thing he was going to do. He was going to produce it. And then he got stuck. And Ben Affleck ended up with it. And we think that we're really really happy that Ben Affleck ended up with it because he made such a great movie. But when it was still Clooney, when we when, when we when we still thought George Clooney was the one uh, and he thought he was the one, he sent us a present. I'm, and I pulled this off my wall to show it to you. This is Tony. Clooney to Tony. It's on Smokehouse letterhead. Just telling him that we're going to make a hell of a movie. Well, it was a nice note, but the way we got it, we lived at that time on 40 acres in the Blue Ridge Mountains down a one mile unpaved road. And Clooney had packaged up a magnum of uh, crystal champagne and he hired a driver to get a brand new bright yellow truck. And that's the guy that came up to our with the champagne and the note. 
so we knew we were dealing with real people. It was great fun. It was great fun. Uh, getting going to the Oscars. I was in I was in New York with um, with a friend. We were we were part of the foundation. We were presenting uh, American musicians, pianists at Carnegie Hall. And I got the note from Tony that said, we're going to the Oscars and we're going in three days. So my friend was a princess and she took me shopping at Bloomingdale's where they have a whole floor of evening gowns. I've never seen that before. And I'm just terrible at shopping. I just looked at this sea of froth and I thought, and my princess friend just, she said that one. And she pulled out this pale pink dress. I don't wear pink. You know, I don't wear pastels. Just everything about it was wrong. I would have never, ever, ever tried on that dress. So I did try it on and I tried on maybe 20 more and her dress was the dress. It's a good thing I was there with a real shopper. Cool. Um, kept, let's see. I kept sending these kids pictures during the Oscars. I don't know who movie stars, I can't tell them apart. So I sent my son a picture. I said, I think somebody has crashed the Oscars. It was just this really crazy looking guy. Jesse came back and he said, oh no, he said, that's Tim Burton and what's his girlfriend? You know, and they're just all kind of looked like a wreck to me. I really did think that they had crashed the thing. So the kids were so you never tried to infiltrate. So you had never tried to infiltrate the Oscars before, Jonna, is what you're saying. This is not no, once that's not where you were working. I think once was enough. It was it was overwhelming. It really was. It was amazing. I did I knew I knew them, but I, I wasn't sure who, who a lot of them were. I just don't watch a lot of stuff. Anyway, it's like getting hit by lightning. Some false starts when you're working with Hollywood. There are lots and lots of moments when whatever the property is you're talking about, everyone tells you they love it. Everyone tells you it's the best thing they've seen in a year. Everyone tells you this is, you know, this is going to make just something so great. And I really believe that they believe it when they say it, but you never hear from them again. So you get to the point where you just like, glad you liked it. And and this this thing, this, this, when this happened, it was actually. It was like an operation to have the movie made. There was a producer we had never heard of. He had always liked the story. And he contacted a writer named Josh Bierman, who writes for a lot of magazines. And Josh Bierman also liked the story. And between them, they put together an article for Wired magazine. And they called Tony and they said, will you help us? And they built it almost like bait for Hollywood. They wow. they constructed it like it was a screenplay. They they had the pictures that were in the article looked like they were pinned to the page, just the way you would put together a, a script or for a for a. And they published it. And before Wired magazine was on the newsstands, we got the call from George Clooney. In the middle of the night, he was overseas somewhere, and our agent said he's he's making an offer, and here's the offer. Tony said. That's great. And the phone rang about eight minutes later, same art agent. They said, Brad Pitt and Paramount are bidding now against Clooney and Warner Brothers and Tony. He said, double the offer. 
and he hung up the next morning george clooney got it and then of course he lost it but he was still a producer at the end well tell us about i know you worked with hollywood in this way but tell us about some ways you worked with hollywood when you were at the cia or others of your colleagues did you know for so many years um we didn't talk about this because those relationships were classified. But as we wrote four books, we discovered ways that we could talk about it without bumping into things. Um, we had worked with the makeup people, the special effects people for a long time. We, we wanted to be able to use some of their tricks, some of their technology, some of their materials, although our, our, our purpose was quite different. They could, they could redo and redo the thing, whatever they were doing, until it looked good on screen. Typically, what we were doing, you had to get it right the first time. Um, we liked John Chambers very much. He was the Planet of the Apes guy. We were interested in, we didn't want to make apes, but we were very interested in how he could draw expressions out of those masks and how those, how those eyes fit. That was a start to our mask program. Um, at the same time, we were also interested in another piece of, of LA, um, and that's the magic community. What we liked, what we were interested in was their ability to create these deceptions and illusions that even if you sat across the table from one of them, they could do it and you couldn't figure out, is that real? Is that, how are they doing that? You know, you can never catch them. So we were we were working both sides of, backstage in Hollywood, the makeup and special effects, and then the magic and the deceptions and illusions. And we got so many useful tools out of that. And we used them. Primarily, we used them in Moscow, which was where we needed these unconventional tools mm -hmm. to get our work done. It was such a tough place to work. We could not work. That was their goal, was to shut us down. Our goal was to maybe let them think we were shut down, but keep working. So with the mask technology, once you could use a mask, they were a little rough at the beginning, they got better and they got better. Um, you could actually put a new face on someone. You could put a different face on them. So you could change gender, you could change uh, ethnicity, you could change whatever, but you could also make another one of you. So there could be two of you. There could be you number one and you could be what we call you two. And then you can switch people around and then surveillance can think, we're with him, we see him, he's in a car, we know where he's going, we got an eye on him, but they didn't because that was you two. You one had, had bailed out of the car and he was over here meeting with the agent. Uh, the mass technology was awesome, what it allowed us to do. Um, undetected, and that was another piece of it, because it was undetected, you could repeat it, you could do it over and over and over, they never knew. They just never knew if that was you or not. Um, the deception and illusion stuff was actually great fun. It's everything, everything you sit in front of your screen or stage and you, you say, I wanna know how to do that. Well, they taught us how to do that. What they taught us started with the idea that that it is, uh, you call it an operation, but for us, it's a performance. And for a successful performance, there are a couple of steps you need to take. One is you have to know where your stage is. You have to know everything about that stage. It's important. 
So where is your stage in Moscow? Is it the, the gate to the embassy compound? Is it the parking garage underneath the embassy? Is it the car that the surveillance are following? Find your stage. And then they said, because it's a performance, who's your audience? Who are you playing to? Well, that KGB surveillance guy in the car would be number one. But um, in, the, in the embassy garage in the basement, it might be the video camera that was in the wall. So if that's your audience, then you can say, okay, uh, the, 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 the angle of vision is probably like this. So as long as we're to the right or the left of that, we're invisible to that audience in the wall. Um, so you would build your deception to your audience and your stage. And then you just pick the time and the place that was always your option and go for it. And um, we had a lot of success doing that. Yeah, that was, that was, it was very time consuming. But at the end of the day, it was, it was more than worthwhile. Um, we had something called a jack in the box. It was a pop-up dummy. Everybody who's ever been in an HOV lane wants one. It's exactly that. It's just a, it's just a dummy that pops up. You could dress it in anything. We could put any face on it we wanted. We could put wigs on it. We could, it could be exactly the person who had been there just a minute before. That person might have left, and now this dummy is up in the car. Um, there's a, a couple of books in, in Moscow Rules. We talked about this one night in Moscow. We were meeting with a man named Tokachev one of the grand spies of all time. He's in our spy museum, full figure behind glass. And he's the one that gave the United States government, the Pentagon and the Defense Department, the plans for the Russians' radar, their next generation of radar, both from aircraft and ground-based. 10 years out, what they were going to be doing. And so the Pentagon was able to build our defenses to their new radar before they even produced their new radar. So the Defense Department said he saved billions of dollars. And the way we met with him at the end, the only way we could meet with him was a jack-in-the-box. That one was in a birthday cake. It's a great story. I mean, it's some of these operations, that's why we wrote about them, because they're just outrageous. But when they were really successful, it was just such a great feeling. It was work worth doing. So, Jonna, I've got a question for you. Um, you've talked about some of the ways you've worked with Hollywood, but I'm wondering, were there any points where maybe Hollywood provided some difficulties for you and the staff at the CIA? Like maybe certain people saw something on TV and are like, hey, why can't we do that? Or anything like that ever happen? Yeah, there was a earlier, earlier on, I want to say it was in the 60s whenever there was a cluster of tv shows mission impossible get smart is a group of kind of fun and engaging spy tv shows and they always had these outrageous tools that they were using that didn't exist in real life um but they were fun to watch on screen and so those shows would typically be on thursday friday through the weekend we had duty officers at cia for the weekend they would get all these calls from CIA officers, real operations officers, calling the duty officers saying, can we do that? Do we have one of those? Because I'd really like to have one of those if we have one. And so we were, we were always kind of trying to push them back and hold them off, except a couple of times, a couple of good ideas came in 
and we we put our engineers on it and we and it was life imitating art every once in a while some good ideas but i don't think the microphone and the shoe we did not do that but i can remember uh in eastern europe used to be traditional in a hotel that you would put your shoes out outside of the room at night because people would come and polish them that was always it was an old tradition and a lot of us well i us it was men's shoes and it wasn't me because it was a little further back but um there were some microphones put in shoes outside their hotel room doors <laughs> so evidently they had watched the same get smart episode that we had watched back here in the states yeah. uh, um all right, Donna, we have talked about Halloween making spy plots. We have talked about you borrowing technology from them. But have you ever consulted on a film or lend Hollywood any of your expertise? You know, we, we, we have done that. There was a TV show. Um, it was on, I think, for two years called The Agency. It was on at the same time that Alias came on. They were actually almost head to head. And we worked for two years. Um, very closely with the screenwriters. We saw every script. I remember the very first script had an Al-Qaeda-like attack at Harrods department store in London. That was the that was the first show. And they had to pull it back and hold it for six months because these terrorist attacks, it was too close to the real thing. It was too painful. They couldn't run it right away. Um, over time, that TV show started turning into like a cop show. And this happens a lot. They wanted, they wanted everyone to carry a gun. It, it's one of those, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, they wanted a little blood, they wanted a little violence, they wanted people like arrested. And we would say, no, that's not really how that works. I think in the end, that's what killed that show is because they kept going in that direction. One of my favorite things that we invented for them I always wondered if the CIA picked up on this because it was so brilliant. We created in our old Office of Technical Service, now this is fictional, an office called the Perfumery. It was, a, it was, was an office of smells. So that if you had, if the forgers had just come out with a document, they created and forged it and it purported to be a hundred years old and they had just pulled it out of a cave you take it to the perfumery and they could make it smell like it had been in a cave for a hundred years. That is thought, so oh, this cool. is such, such a great idea. That's so awesome. I have a feeling that they didn't pick it up, <laughs> but we loved it. We have a bunch of questions coming in from the audience and I'm sure my colleagues, we're looking at them and translating them and I'm sure my colleagues wonder why I picked the one that I did first but it is so dear to me because I can see Tony with this one and you will too. Someone wants to know, there is a joke in the movie about Argo, F yourself. And that's where it comes from. And they want to know if there's any truth to that. Nothing but truth. That is what it was. It was a punchline, kind of an off-color punchline from a knock-knock joke. Um, and when we were doing, you know, I get the real thing in the movie sometimes in my head a little crazy, but John Chambers was helping us 
put together a studio in LA on the 20th century lot. They actually set up a, an office for Studio Six to produce this movie called Argo. Well, the joke was John Chambers' joke. This was like a little Tony, Tony gave him a little credit because he's gonna name it after John's joke. Argo was, we, we used to, people would walk by your desk and you'd be working on something or you'd be an artist, you'd be in the middle of trying to make it look just right. And somebody would walk by and you'd say, Argo! It was a battle cry. I just always remember Tony say, he always did that when he said it. I just, I picture him in my mind and I said, I'm gonna jump to that question, so. And someone found out that, that the Argo could also be Jason and the Argonauts, which is a very right. wonderful Greek story, blah, blah. It is a wonderful story, but that wasn't, that wasn't, no. 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 that wasn't it. That's great. Well, I've got another question kind of in that similar vein of, you know, in the film Argo, um, you know, it, it's not all technically totally true to real life. Um, and uh, this person would like to hear what, you know, your thoughts, what Tony's thoughts were when that came out and you guys knew, you know, it wasn't totally following the pure accurate story. You know, the, the screenwriter, Chris Terrio, came in. He spent a week with us. This is the first movie he ever wrote. This is the first one. He won an Oscar for it. I mean, it was just, how would you like to be Chris Terrio? He was brilliant. But he stayed in touch with us throughout. He started out working with Clooney when Clooney still thought it was his and he was going to do it. Then it switched to Ben Affleck. And, and Ben wanted to take it in a little bit of a different direction. And there was some concern because we didn't know what he wanted to do with it. I remember the first draft that we saw of the rework of the script had Tony at somebody else's promotion party and he was drunk. And we said, now hold on. Everybody we know, like they care, everybody we know is gonna see this movie. And that we just, can you, don't do that. So they, they didn't do that, they took it out. Although they left in some bottles of scotch and Ben Affleck's hands through the movie. Lots of scotch. They needed a flawed, a flawed hero. That's part of the recipe, evidently, for a movie. Um, Chris stayed in touch with us throughout. We knew what was happening. For instance, uh, let's see, there was never a truck that chased them down the tarmac in the airplane at the end. That did not happen. But Chris was explaining to us, he said, now look, my job. My job is to convey to that audience how scared you guys were. And we know that you were, you know, you were on that plane, your knees were shaking, but but he said, I know that what you were afraid of was those F-16s that we had given the Shaw, and they were still flying those F-16s. Tony said, that's what they were doing. They were looking out the windows to see if they had scrambled those planes. And he, Tony said, they were scared to death until they got out of airspace. Chris said, well, that doesn't, that doesn't work. I can't have you peeking out the windows, you know, for five minutes. He said, so So what I did was I scared that audience in another way. Not F-16s, but trucks with guns. So, so you know, and it works. Because, you know, at the end of that movie, when you saw it the first time, every audience stood up and cheered. They were so excited that they escaped, even though they knew they were going to escape before they went into the theater. Yeah, there were... Um, the heart of the story is there. The basic points of the operation are there. None of that was changed. There were differences in opinion. 
there were uh, Canadians who felt that they hadn't been given enough credit. You could make that argument. We wrote a book at the same time. Our book came out before the movie, but just barely. It was like a foot race. Because when Tony saw that the story, this always happens when a book goes to a movie. It never stays exactly the same. Tony said, we need to kind of lock down the real story, just if people want to compare. This is the movie and this is the book. So um, so we wrote the book. If you read the book, you'd see like every seven pages, Tony saying, thank you, Canada. He couldn't say it enough. He considered the Canadians heroic. Ken Taylor to be what we would all wish an ambassador would be, risk, really risking his life for people he didn't even know. They weren't even his countrymen. They didn't have to do that. Um, thank you, Canada. Anyway, there were those kinds of issues. So nobody's ever totally happy. But I think at the end of the day, the, 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 the broad picture of what was done and how it was depicted is nothing but gigantic plus. Of course, I'm biased. Um, let's see what else we have here. So, Jana, because I think of you, I think disguise, you're featured in the disguise gallery at the museum, um, which I know everyone loves the show The Americans. And if you've attended our other happy hours, we tend to bring up that show probably every happy hour, I think. Uh, how accurate are those disguises in that TV show? Well, his are so good. And hers, there's kind of a fatal flaw in, in her disguises. And that is that she is so beautiful. And they never really wanted to smudge her up. It's a TV show. They wanted to keep her beautiful, but make her different. So now she's a beautiful brunette. Now she's a beautiful redhead. So I, I would always find fault with her disguises. His disguises, on the other hand, or exactly, precisely, we could use him for a training film. He would put on some little wrinkled wig and just he'd, he'd just start getting gray and put on some wire rim glasses and start shrinking and down and he'd go knock on that woman's door. He was fabulous. He was fabulous. You know, there was a funny story uh, about that. I was I was up in Amanda's office one afternoon and somebody walked by and said, "Who's watching the Americans?" And I said. I, uh, I don't even know who asked. They said, the Washington Post is looking for a review. You want to write a review? And I said, sure. <laughs> that's, sure. What it, that's what my museum is like. <laughs> I always, yeah, and I always say sure. So I had seen three episodes, and I really liked it. But I didn't know it had been on for six years. I had watched six years, all smushed together, which is a great way to watch it. And I didn't know until it was over that they had gotten married in real life and had a baby. So I, I did a podcast with Joe Weisberg at the Spy Museum with Vince, Terry Walter. And I was telling him this story and he was just cracking up. <laughs> but I'm the one that did, that did the review for the Post. Well, I loved the show. I thought that the scenario, everything from, from that FBI neighbor which is every CIA person's nightmare. And it's your next door neighbor who's just gonna just somehow just 
bust the whole thing wide open. They don't have to be FBI to do it. It was, um, I just, I thought it was really good. The family piece of it was excellent. Um, the fact that the Anna Chapman thing had happened not so far in the, in the past was excellent. Joe Weisberg had a wonderful touch when he was writing that. And I'm glad to hear that you mentioned it in almost every podcast. We are, we are at an hour, but I want to ask one final question because people are asking, they'd heard something about you wearing disguise into the White House and briefing the first President Bush. And I don't think we should let a conversation about disguise go away without you very quickly acknowledging whether that is a true story or not. Oh, it's so true. That was that was um, that was a an unplanned moment. I was chief of disguise, and we had been working on this mask technology for almost a decade. And the, the point was, we could do masks, but they didn't move. We wanted an animated mask. We wanted one that you could talk in. It was it was a lot of work, and we finally we started getting there. Um, and the first one we made the first one to come out of production turned me into an african-american man and i mean i looked great and i had gloves it was very very realistic so i showed my office director and he said let's go show the uh, dci that was judge webster and he liked it so much he said let's go see the president let's let's go see let's go i said no i can't i can't go in this first of all i can't walk it and talk it this is just kind of for a to show you where the technology is, but I can't believably carry this off. He said, well, make another one that you can. So I went back to my office and we had some sculptors working for us and one was a female and she was leaving and she gave me her face, which fit over my face. And that was always, you couldn't just put any face over it. The face had to be larger than yours. Everything had to be, the nose had to be bigger, the, it had to be bigger, it couldn't be smaller. So we were we were a great fit. And she um, put her, it was my face on the inside and her face on the outside. So there was this fit. And the animation has to do with what's in between those two layers that will move. Um, it came with hair. I thought I never looked so good ever. <laughs> I saw it not so long ago. She's not aging well. No, you're aging a whole lot better than she is. Last time we saw her was in a bag at a awards dinner. She's Literally, going, in a bag going, at the table. She's going green, yeah. We're, we're referring to the mask here, not yeah, the I was like, we're we're talking about <laughs> You want the, the mask going, going. I used to have sort of a vision of, of somebody just shipping me this box and it would be my face and I, I you know, I would I would never get old. Anyway, we went to the White House and it, I went to Judge Webster's, put it on. His dog did not like me. And then it liked me when I was wearing the mask, which kind of debunks that old theory about dogs and hats. Because I thought, this ought to look like a hat to a dog. But the dog preferred me incognito. So we went to the White House. We had to hang around outside of the Oval Office because they were going long in there. All the men were gathering, telling jokes, laughing, just they all knew each other so well. And I'm there in my mask, first time I've ever worn it. So you're paranoid. You just are. Even if you're cheap in disguise, you're paranoid. 
And then we went in. And I was going to go first, so I went to the far right. I sat closest to the president. It was like a horseshoe. It was on the far right. And I showed him some pictures of what disguises we had done for him when he was head of CIA. I said, so I'm here today to show you how much better we've gotten at this, the, the new technology, what we can do today. And he's looking around like, well, where is it? Where is it? I said, well, I'm wearing it. I said, let me take it off and show it to you. He said, don't take it off. So he gets up and he walks around and he comes and he walks around and he's looking and he's, he sat back down. He said, okay, now take it off. So I did that and that's Tom Cruise knew you do that. And I'm holding it up in the air to show it to him. Now I used to have a picture of it here, but Eliza at the museum has it. I was holding it up in the air, just giving him a few groups on, you know, how long it takes to make it, how effective it is, what it's like to wear it, blah, blah, blah. And then I was done. First one done. So I walked out of the Oval Office. My husband, Tony, had been in there some years earlier. And he said, when you go in, make sure you know what door you're going in, because there are a whole lot of doors in that office. And one of them is a broom closet. <laughs> and the rest are not. So I knew my door and I went out in the office and that uh, that dog, the White House dog, Millie, um, George Bush's wife's dog, Millie had puppies and playing with puppies. And the photographer came out. She had been in there taking pictures. She'd been walking around the room, ka-ching, 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 doing her job, doing her job. And she came out and she said, what did you do? And I said, you took pictures, right? She said, yeah, but but what was that? I said, I can't tell you. It's classified. I felt like an idiot. It took 10 years to get the picture. And they've airbrushed the mask out, the picture I got. So I have a picture, except Eliza has. It hangs in my office. And I'm sitting in front of the President of the United States. Look, look, what, uh, look what Hannah dug up. Yeah, it's I that have, picture have in the middle. But my version of it, the mask is not there. And I'm just pointing at the at the president. This is just a little piece of the picture. I'm pointing I called, at the president. I called Jana one day and I said, I just saw a presentation where someone doesn't have your mask airbrushed out. Did you know about that? So then we went on the great non-mask airbrushed out hunt. That's how we found out it was declassified. It had been declassified. But that was a big moment. That was a big deal. Uh, we were showing it to a man who understood because he'd worked there and used disguise. He understood what it meant. He understood what a what a piece of work that was. It was a moment. I just never thought I was going to be sharing it with anyone ever. Well, that is the interesting connection between Hollywood and espionage and the real world. I mean, you and Tony both have said so many times, you never thought you'd be sharing these stories. And now you're in a museum, you're on this webcast, and we cannot thank you enough for joining us for this one and the many other programs you have done with us, Jana. We love you so much. Thank I should you. mention you're a, a founding advisory board member and just have been, you've had board retreats for us at your home. I mean, we you are so precious to us and we thank our wonderful audience. And if you're feeling generous, you know, we never mind if you want to make a donation to Mission Resilience because we are open. You can come visit 
but usually we have about 3,000 people and we are monitoring safety protocols like crazy. So we are not having 3,000 people and you can go and visit and feel really safe or you can sit at home and just send us, you know, a little contribution. Ladies. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you, Jana. Always fun. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.